Hey, it's your host, Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer. As a community-powered show, we do need your listener support to be able to keep the podcast alive. So if you're inspired by our conversations, you can reciprocate support starting from a gift of $2 at greendreamer.com support. For now, on to today's episode, which is a replay of our conversation from July of 2020 with Harriet Washington. Why do we have 20 erectile dysfunction drugs and nothing new and efficient for malaria? It's because which one makes more money? You know, the people who suffer malaria don't have the money that Americans have to pay, in case of cancer drugs, almost a million dollars a year for treatment of, of cancer. Unfortunately, we've ceded that role of the university as a public health supporter to corporations who are mostly interested in making money. That's why our drugs cost so much. That's why people in the developing world can't get the drugs. But more to the point, that's why drugs for needed conditions are either not being developed at all or only being developed in situations where they can charge a lot of money. Harriet is an award-winning medical writer and editor and author of the best-selling book, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. She's also the author of A Terrible Thing to Waste, Environmental Racism, and Its Assault on the American Mind. We begin here as Harriet shares about her entry point into looking at bioethics and the medical apartheid. I was interested in bioethics before I even understood that it was a discipline, possibly before it was a discipline, because I worked in hospitals for a very long time, both as undergraduate student and after I graduated. And working in a teaching hospital in upstate New York, I had occasion to see a great deal of healthcare disparities, a great deal of disparate treatment, not only of patients, but also of staff. I knew things were profoundly wrong, but no one was talking about healthcare disparities in the 1970s and 1980s. So these were things that I perceived that I knew were transpiring, but there wasn't any interest in people pursuing them or quantifying them or even admitting that they existed. And I felt that was profoundly wrong, but I also knew I was unequipped to do anything about it. I wasn't a writer yet. I was a pre-medical student, actually, and it just seemed more prudent to keep my head down, you know, Mm -hmm. and make observations, but not really sure what I would do with them. And as time went by, um, I became less interested in the practice of clinical medicine and more interested in in the ethics component. But again, I frankly did not have the training to investigate it as I should. So I had a practice of collecting information without knowing what I was doing with it. And eventually... When I stopped working as a medical social worker and as as I ran the poison control center at the hospital for a while, I worked in a lot of laboratories as a lowly technician, and I moved over into journalism. And that's when I began to see an outlet for this. So I began addressing it to some extent, but not very profoundly, until I was page one editor at USA Today. They had a loaned editor program where editors would come in from other papers around the country, they would come to Washington, D.C., work at USA Today for a while. And while I was there, I learned that Harvard actually had a competition for journalism fellows. They had a program where they would bring three people onto the medical center to be the medical writer in residence for a year or so. And in my case, I won the fellowship and I spent two years at the Harvard School of Public Health. And that's where I began 
gathering the information that would allow me to put my concerns and observations in context. Mm. I followed that up with a fellowship at the medical school in medical ethics. And now I felt that I had the um, requisite philosophical basis, historical sense, and vocabulary to analyze what I had learned. And I used all that to write medical apartheid. And since then, I've been focused pretty heavily on medical ethics and medicine, although there are other things I'm interested in as well. And I've had a chance to pursue them. I did a book on infectious causes of mental illness, something I think has been had been neglected for a very long time, but is now gaining some traction uh, as people recognize that not just psychological pressures and stresses, but also infection are some causes of mental illness. They, they often help trigger mental illness or even come predisposing factors. So anyway, I've been really fortunate, I think, to take my passion for seeing justice in medicine to a level where I can communicate with other experts and with the and with laypersons about mm-hmm. the issues that threaten threaten us most profoundly when it comes to making sure that medicine lives up to its stated ideals. So I feel really fortunate. So one of your most notable books is Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present. And this was, as you mentioned, the first and only comprehensive history of medical experimentation on African Americans. I'm assuming you wrote this because you couldn't find such a compilation of information and focus on this angle out there. So is this history something you feel that the average person or even the medical community has a lack of awareness of? And to our listeners who may never really have thought about this, what do you think is most significant for them to know and keep in mind? Well, there's several questions there. Let me take the first, your observation about there being a vacuum of information about this. There is indeed a vacuum, but it's more than not having it addressed. I was rather surprised to find out that this has been, if not a conscious decision, a systematic decision. On 2001, I went to Lübeck, Germany, for what was billed as an international conference on the history of medical experimentation. And I got there and discovered that it was there were a lot of Europeans, there were some Americans, there was one Russian that I recall, and one person of Asian descent, I believe she was Japanese. That's it. It was not global as I would define global. It was not international. There was no one there from Africa. There was no one there from the developing world or the global south. And as we presented our papers and had our discussions, I thought, what a great chance to talk to all these inter, you know, international experts in the history of medicine and talk to them about what I should be sure to include in this book that deals with how um, American medicine has treated African-Americans. Every person I approached told me, there's really nothing there. There's a Tuskegee experiment, but nothing else happened. I said, well, I'm finding quite a bit. They said, oh, those are all conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. Well, I knew they were not because I garner almost all my information from sources that are respected by, you know, medical scholarship in the pages of medical journals, in doctors' memoirs themselves, in government records. So all these things happened, but none of these experts were willing to admit that they had happened. Certainly none of them had written about them. And I realized that the... um for whatever reason, the decision to exclude this part of history of medicine is something that was essentially agreed upon. And I found that totally unacceptable. So 
I did not have much difficulty in finding information. In fact, my big challenge was to turn in a book that, as my editor said, would not have 700 pages and cost $100. <laughs> so I, the problem was like just culling from all the information I had. So this was unfortunately an example of censorship for whatever reason. And that really disturbed me, but it also um, fired my determination to make sure the book was completed and published. So something you've really shown as a fallacy is researchers using the IQ test to determine intelligence. And this assumption that IQ equals intelligence is so pervasive that I think is, it's important for us to unpack here. What exactly does the IQ test actually measure and what environmental factors might affect it, which shows that it's not a test of hereditary intelligence? Exactly is probably the wrong adjective, but what IQ tests measure is achievement, educational achievement. An IQ test will tell you how literate you are. It's telling that the SAT test, although it makes no claim of measuring intelligence, is used as a proxy for IQ in many situations, including college admissions. But the SAT test, like the IT te IQ test, does a good job of telling us how many words have you mastered and how many words can you use correctly? What's your literacy level? Also, IQ tests do a good job of measuring your ability to manipulate numbers in prescribed ways. So can you do the kind of mathematical functions we expect someone to master at a certain age? Now, what's interesting about this is we're talking about learning. We're not talking about innate capacity, which is what IQ tests are often described as measuring, but they don't measure. And there are quite a few pieces of evidence for that. Um, one is that something called the Flynn Effect. James Flynn wrote a book in which he documented how in, the West, in our country and in much of the West, IQ points have been rising steadily three points per decade over a long time span. Now, does rising IQ test, does that mean that we're getting smarter? Or does that mean that education has become more commonplace? In a society like ours, where education is compulsory, does it mean that more people are learning to read, at least to, to a certain level, and that more people are learning to do basic mathematical functions and analytic reasoning? That's much more likely than supposing that, for some reason, human beings in one country have suddenly be begun to get smarter and smarter. Also, people often point to IQ tests as a proxy for intelligence. But if you look at the most commonly used book that purports to rank countries by IQ, what you find are you have rankings where the U.S. is around, you know, covers just about 100 normal IQ. But you look at the countries in the global south, in depressed areas, in areas with a great deal of sickness, and you find very low IQs. In fact, in Africa, the first edition of the book found that there were only two countries in Africa where the average IQ was over 70. 70, by most measures, is a cutoff for mental retardation. So what the authors were actually saying is that all of Africa is mentally retarded. Now, that's unlikely, but it's even more unlikely when you look at the populations that they looked at to do these tests and their methodology. Incredibly sloppy, incredibly poor methodology, often relying on very old tests and often relying on 
constructs that we wouldn't even recognize as tests. They were a little bit too diffuse. For example, in Ethiopia, which they ascribed an IQ of around, um, I think in the high 60s initially, it might even have been in the 50s, they determined that by looking at over around 130 children in one orphanage in Ethiopia. The orphanage was filled with children who had survived war, genocide, the death of their parents, and starvation. This is not a representative sample for many reasons. First, they're kids. First, they've been orphaned. They've been starved. They've been traumatized. And not all the children had were tested in the language in which they were proficient. You know, these IQ tests ignore the fact that in a lot of societies, being literate is not a const- constituent of intelligence. In our, in our country, we can't imagine calling someone intelligent who can't read and write. But the reality is in, in many countries and societies, being able to read and write has almost no bearing on your ability to make a living care for your father, family, do all the things that we think intelligence helps us to do. In many countries, agrarian societies, what makes more sense is looking at how well a person can read the landscape, how well they can determine you know, which plants are helpful and harmful, which helps them survive. They have very, very different criteria for intelligence. We completely ignore that. And we Mm -hmm. test them on the Procrustean bed of our own IQ. The things that make sense to us, that constitute high intelligence for us, are the things that we test them on without acknowledging the fact that they may have nothing to do with their life. One researcher said, an IQ test can tell if you'll be a good office worker. It can't tell that you'll be a good farmer. So there are all these reasons why IQ tests are, frankly, nonsensical. The bias is not sufficient a word to, to describe it. They simply lack context and they lack any kind of um, linkage to what's really intelligence. You know, we have to acknowledge the fact intelligence varies from area to area. What's intelligence in the U.S. may have nothing to do with what's intelligence in Malaysia or what constitutes intelligence in a different part of the world. So this kind of ignorance is really driving a lot of um bias against people of different societies. In fact, none of the researchers with whom I spoke was able to give a really cogent definition of intelligence. We don't even, we can't even define it. And yet we feel perfectly comfortable, some of us, in deciding that some people, as a result of IQ tests, show that they are less intelligent than, than we are, than others. It's really no accident that Um, Europeans from industrialized countries and Asians from certain countries, not all Asians, tend to top these um, measures and that people of color are at the bottom. It's a clear indication that we've got this profound lens through which we are seeing intelligence and we're trying to force everybody onto it. Right. So it seems like these, a lot of these standardized tests, they're really narrow-minded in what they measure and perhaps they've been used as a tool to justify and perpetuate this institutionalized racism. That's exactly what they've been used for. I I detail in the book, and Stephen Jay Gould also details in his book, The Mismeasure of Man, and, oh, also, wonderful book, Robert Guthrie, Even the Rat Was White. (laughs) He was a psychologist (laughs) who looked at psychology in the U.S., and with deadly accuracy, he, he denuded a lot of the rampant racial bias in testing and assessment. And yes, all this was indeed 
a tool of impression because from the Victorian era in the 1800s, when you had this new piece of scientists called the American School of Ethnology, one of their tenets was that Africans and African-Americans, they didn't really distinguish between the two, were lower in intelligence than whites, profoundly lower in intelligence than whites. And quickly, after a time, scientists began to prove, I use that in quotation marks, this by collecting data about African-Americans. But as Gould masterfully outlines in his book, even though these tests were very detailed, collected enormous amounts of, of data, they were, A, often nonsensical, like Morton, George Morton, who had a collection of hundreds, if not a thousand, skulls of different races, and he painstakingly measured the volume of the skulls and decided that the lowest volume skulls were the least intelligent people. And, of course, it was completely unscientific. Not only does skull vol volume and brain volume have not to do with intelligence, he, was he didn't have quick for the fact that some of the skulls came from smaller people. So their brain volume might have been relatively larger than the others, but he didn't acknowledge that fact. So it's completely absurd. And yet what I find very interesting is that from the beginning, the scientists who have espoused this hereditarian view that intelligence is racial and passed on genetically, they have taken care to use a great deal of data. Spidery columns of numbers. I don't know about you, but I think like most people, I see enormous numbers of numbers and manipulation. I'm immediately intimidated. Mm -hmm. I think most people have that reaction. And that's something that they capitalize on. Think about the bell curve. I mean, there is so much data in the bell curve, so many graphs, so many illustrations. I'm not sure that most readers of the bell curve even understood the graphs, understood their context. But they impress people. So that's something that we have to be very careful about. I also right. want to talk a bit about um, one of the things about environment and intelligence is that because of this, we've inherited this body of work from hereditarians. And we have all these scientists that are present-day hereditarians, not only scientists like um, Charles Murray of the Bell Curve, but even James Watson, who's revered among geneticists for having been awarded the Nobel Prize for discovering the structure of DNA. These scientists are, they believe in inherited intelligence. They believe that African-Americans are less intelligent than whites. And they always use a belief in a genetic propensity to intelligence, but there's no gene been found for that. And I've heard this prediction ever since the 1960s. Every decade, a prominent scientist like Watson will say, we're going to find the gene in 10 years. And it's mm -hmm. never been found. It doesn't exist. But what does exist, profound evidence that environmental exposures profoundly affect what we think of as intelligence, right. you know, the ability. Yeah. So the example I use in the book is uh, salt. The fact that um, in 1924, there was a 15-point gap, which is the IQ of some Americans and others. Hereditarians today point to the 15-point gap between African-Americans and white Americans. And they say, there you have it, proof positive that African-Americans are inherently less intelligent than white Americans. But in 1924, we had this gap. And scientists were worried about it, not because of intelligence. They were worried about it because of goiters. They knew that having an iodine deficiency would lead to a goiter, which is like an unsightly 
lump in the throat that usually is not life-threatening, but sometimes requires surgery. It looks terrible. And they wanted to eliminate goiters. So they began adding potassium iodide to salt. It was cheap. It only cost $2 to infuse a ton of salt with potassium iodide. And soon, iodized salt was common, just like it is today. You find it everywhere. And as iodized salt began being used commonly, years later, I think only 20 years later, when they did testing for the army of soldier recruits, they found out that soldiers from the um, low IQ area now had the same average IQ as everybody else. That 15-point gap had been closed. They were shocked to see this. And only now do we, now we realize that iodine deficiency can cause mental retardation. In fact, it's the largest cause of mental retardation in the world. The people who had had a 15-point lower IQ had it because they were at iodine deficiency. When they began taking enough iodine, it was closed. So we closed that 15-point that gap in 20 years very cheaply by adding iodine to salt. Mm. And that's a powerful point, piece of evidence that shows how powerful the, your environment is when it comes to determine, determining your IQ. And of course, by extension, in many people's eyes, to determining your intelligence. I don't think that IQ actually denotes intelligence, but it does denote one's you know, educational achievement, how well one has learned, which can be an indirect indication of a problem with your, your intelligence. So it does a very good job of, an IQ gap does a good job of showing that something has happened to impede your learning, but it does not, and it actually was never designed to designate how intelligent you are in comparison to other people. It was never designed to do that. Right. So I guess it shows more of the circumstantial factors and environmental factors and privilege as well compared to who you actually are as a person. And you focus a lot on environmental racism that you just touched on, which you said initially you didn't want to talk about environmental issues through the lens of race, but you realized that was absolutely necessary. Can you illuminate for us why indeed this is a racial issue and not simply a socioeconomic or class issue as many people presume it to be? It's often been assumed to be a socioeconomic issue. We can talk about why later, but that has been the presumption. And that has been the context in which not only news reports, but some scientific reports have placed it. They have started with the assumption that socioeconomic and then look for socioeconomic cues to it. But what we have come to learn is that it's not socioeconomic. With better data collection, and better analysis, we have learned that if you look at the points where IQ and exposures to environmental toxins coalesce, these are racially mandated. So it, it means, for example, African-Americans who earn fifty dollars to $60,000 a year, making them suddenly middle class in most parts of the country, they are much more likely to be exposed to environmental toxins than our white Americans who earn over $10,000 per annum. Profoundly poor. Profoundly poor white Americans have less, less exposure to environmental toxins than do African-Americans. And our country's history of forcing African-Americans into living in certain areas has really been the cause of this. In fact, segregation has not ended. You know, it ended legally. The law struck down segregation in the 1960s, but that was de jure segregation. De facto segregation has not only 
continued, it has escalated. It has actually gotten worse. Mm-hmm. I spoke with David R. Williams at the Harvard School of Public Health, and he pointed out to me that if we wanted to achieve parity so that black people and white people lived in the same areas, 66% of African-Americans would have to move. So African-Americans have always, in our country's history, been trapped in areas where they're exposed to environmental toxins far more dramatically than were white Americans. The only group for which the situation is even worse is Native Americans, who often are deprived of the very services that run through their lands. I mean, you have many Native Americans living in areas where um, electrical cables go through, where water pumps are active, and they don't have access to clean water or electricity. So basically forcing people to live in these environmental sacrifice um, zones is something that has happened throughout our country's history and has got to be addressed if we're going to like achieve parity and remove the disparate assault. So it's interesting to point out though, not until Monica, um, what's her name? I shouldn't be blanking on her name. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to mangle it. So I'll just have to tell you what it is later. No on. worries. We can add that yeah. to the show notes. I think it's Ajarishi. But anyway, she's a pediatrician who wrote a paper in 2016. Up until that point, all the newspapers and all the medical reports discussed the poisoning of Flint, Michigan, in areas of Detroit, as if they were socioeconomically based. And all they all did. She was the first one who confronted it and said, no, look at the data. Exposure is stratified by race. And I think part of the confusion stems from the fact that I'm not saying that socioeconomics is not a risk factor. It certainly is. Poverty is a risk factor for greater environmental exposure, but it's a weak one in comparison to race. Race is such a stronger one that eclipses poverty. So I think people are much, in general, are more comfortable with acknowledging socioeconomics than they are with acknowledging race. What does it say about your society if one has to admit that I live in a country where people of color are forced into environmental sacrifice zones? That's an ugly thing to have to admit about your country. And it's much more comfortable to say that, oh, it's because they're poor. You can't be blamed for poverty in the same way that you can be blamed for racism. Mm. Poverty can be you know, portrayed as a tragedy, but racism definitely has, a guilt, has guilty actors, you know, if not consistently, at least initially. And that's why I think people are very uncomfortable with facing this fact. So a lot of things that black and brown people and native peoples disproportionately face from air pollution to food deserts, food swamps, chemical toxicity, all of these things really interact with one another synergistically in ways that you right. say are not yet quantifiable by research. So I guess the question that I have is, isn't so much of this intuitive? And do we really need to wait for decades of real life experiment causing harm to people in order to know for sure that the compounded effects are serious and then have enough data and proof of harm to show the government that this is not acceptable? You're absolutely right. Of course we don't. But guess who thinks that we do? Mm. Industry. It's, you know, the interesting thing about these continued escalating demands for more and more proof of something that is clearly a hazard. For one thing, that's something that happens in our country doesn't necessarily happen everywhere. The precautionary principle is that principle that says um, 
if you have strong suspicion of harm, if you've got a correlation that points to harm, it makes more sense to address it than to wait for all the data to roll in. That, data, that kind of data collection takes decades and can be very expensive. And during the time that we have had to amass data to satisfy industry, that they're really, their toxic you know, exposures really are harming people. How many you know, IQ points have we lost? How much illness and death has ensued? So you're absolutely right. But one of the things that happened to me in the course of writing this book was my definition of an industry scientist changed. I used to think of it as a scientist who um, you know, was paid by industry, who made his living working for industry, whose title reflected the fact that he was an industrial scientist. But now I've come to view an industry scientist as someone, scientist working for anyone, a university on his own. But as long as she is working and being paid by industry, she is working for industry because industry will not continue to pay a scientist for results that put it in a bad light or results that fail to support its stance. And the stance of um, doubt, of casting doubt on the seemingly clear hazards posed by these chemicals, it's not only a scientific stance, it's also a profitable economic stance. It's the most profitable way for industry to go, to deny the harms as long as they can and as effectively as they can with lots of data is their key to evading responsibility. And scientists who they pay to do research, again, will only be paid as long as their results are in line with the industrial stance so that they are actually are working for industry and they are using their science to perpetrate industry's denial of culpability. In my classes, I taught about one scientist who... Um, he talked about the fact that when he was doing research on atrazine and found that it caught and sterilized frogs in extremely low concentrations and found that in turn, farm workers and people who were exposed to it were also having reproductive problems, then the, he says the first reaction from the people who had hired him was, here are some statistical tools you can use to basically make these effects disappear. Mm. And um, he wouldn't do that. And as a result, he now has a very contentious relationship with, with this industry. But um, it's the kind of manipulation and the kind of embracing of doubt that is really problematic. We really need, part of the problem, I think, is that we tend to have a lot of testing of industrial chemicals that people will have proximity to. A lot of testing that either is flawed, doesn't work well, or we simply aren't testing enough. After someone is harmed or their claims of harm, then we'll do better tests, more tests, which are not always better tests. And we have to revise the way we do tests. We have to be more like the European Union and demand more tests before people are exposed and also be a lot more discriminating and demanding about the quality of the tests that we perform. Because sometimes, um, in fact, often, Tests are done at thresholds with the assumption that no one's harmed below a certain threshold. That was an assumption we made with lead for a very long time. Now we acknowledge that no exposure is safe. But I remember in the 80s when I worked at the Poison Control Center, we were only recommending people be seen or treated if they had what looked like enormously high levels now. So um, 
we really need to revise the way we do testing and we need to be much more much more discriminating when it comes to rejecting the doubt espoused by industry. Right. I think a lot of the general public may feel like we should get our information as much as possible from research. But at this point, we also have to question how that research was done, how it was set up, and who was funding it as well. So not all research can be 100% trusted. And so often when we're talking about things like obesity, diabetes, or even poor performance in school for children, we have a culture that tends to see these as their personal problems. So they need better education, they need to study harder, they need better impulse control, and on and on and on. And you call these blame the victim messages. Can you expand on this further to show how much of our health is really based on individual choice and accountability versus on the contextualized environmental injustice that maybe shows the often illusion of choice? Personal responsibility in health is really important, and we should be espousing that. The problem is when one focuses on personal responsibility in situations where an individual has no responsibility, has no power to change things that are happening. Environmental exposure is one of those. If we talk about someone who lives across the street and has been for decades from a you know diesel fuel spewing bus depot, in Harlem, and then tell that person that, oh, well, you're sick, you're sick, you've got diabetes, you have kidney disease, you need to lose weight. This is not an uncommon scenario. Mm. Perhaps the person does need to lose weight. That has nothing to do with the fact that fumes have been triggering their kidney disease, have been triggering their asthma, have been exacerbating their hypertension, and that things over which they have no control are ruining their health. So, you know, public health began in this country focusing on confronting industry, confronting government when necessary, about eliminating hazards of public health. And we've moved from that to focusing on personal responsibility. The problem is one needs both and one needs to pursue them appropriately. It's not appropriate to invoke personal responsibility people who are trapped in environmental sacrifice zones. That's not appropriate. We should be confronting industry, and our weakened EPA is not doing that. Far from it. The Environmental Protection Agency today seems much more interested in supporting business, even business that is, that is crippling and killing people, than it is in trying to impose better regulations or making them live up to the regulations that already exist. EPA is actually failing Americans at this point and not doing its job to protect them. And so invoking personal behavior is a slap in the face. There's also a very long history of them doing this successfully. Lead being probably the prime example, the LAIA, Lead Industry Association, successfully turned the tables on and invoked the bad housekeeping, dirtiness, ignorance, of African, I think they called them black and Puerto Rican parents back then, saying it's because they were such bad housekeepers that lead dust was everywhere and their kids were being poisoned. Of course, that's ridiculous. Lead dust was everywhere because the industry imported it. They militated for lead to be put into cars, anti-knock, even though ethanol would have been a non-toxic and equally effective additive, they wanted to use lead. They militated for 
lead paint being used on children's toys. They militated for um, the government to use lead to line pipes that carry water, even though we <laughs> the ancient Romans even glimpsed toward the end that this was a toxic material they were having uh, carry their water. So we've known that for a long time, and yet the government did not stop them. Industry was able to triumph, and they're still... Now, today, industries are successfully demonizing African-Americans who complain about being poisoned. So we, need, we really need to dramatically revise the way that we handle this. Mm. So on the podcast, we've previously talked about the military-industrial complex, which profits off of perpetuating violence and wars overseas. And we've also talked about the prison-industrial complex, which profits off of dehumanization and mass incarceration and often criminalizes poverty and people's reactions to desperation and struggle. For both of these systems, while not justified at all, violence, exploitation, and punishment seem to be embedded into their reasons of existence. But when we're talking about our healthcare industry, something that should exist to support people's health and be of service to our public well-being, a lot of people don't know that we also have a medical industrial complex. As you outline in your book, Deadly Monopolies, the profit motive has encroached in colonizing human life and compromising medical ethics, end quote. What exactly does this medical industrial complex consist of? And in what ways do you think they've been overstepping and finding ways to capitalistically extract value and profit? How long do you have? <laughs> <laughs> many, many ways. I'll just say that in Deadly Monopolies, I talked about the fact that in the 1980s, a series of laws catalyzed a very cozy relationship between American corporations and universities, as well as between universities and the military. Essentially, for the first time um, in a long time, it became legal for universities to take a patent, to take a discovery, a drug that, a molecule or medically important drug that had been invented or um, refined by an academic, and then assign it to a corporation for profit. So to sell the patent to a corporation, to license a drug or medicate or a molecule to the corporation, so they became very cozy. Now universities began making a lot of money selling the discoveries to corporations, and corporations began making a lot more money by selling them to the American public. What's you know it's very interesting because when corporations began doing this, it was promulgated as a way to encourage industry and to make better use of the patents and to make more drugs available. The problem is that now the corporations own these um, licenses and own, own these patents. They began charging what traffic could bear and the ability to make money from patent became eclipsing the motivation of universities to find drugs that people really needed. So instead now of looking for drugs for, that are desperately needed like new and better antibiotics, new and better anti antidepressants, uh, new and better drugs against malaria. Now corporations are focused on making the most money with the least effort. Copycat drugs, drugs for very common trivial conditions like um, gastric distress and um, erectile dysfunction. Why do we have 20 erectile dysfunction drugs and nothing new and efficient for malaria? It's because which one makes more money? Mm. You know, the people who suffer from malaria don't have the money that Americans have to pay 
in ca- case of cancer drugs, almost a million dollars a year for treatment of, of cancer. Amer- some, Americans, some Americans can do that. Nobody in Africa do, can do that, with a few exceptions. Nobody in Brazil or Thailand can do that. So unfortunately, we've ceded that role of the university as a public health supporter to corporations who are mostly interested in making money. That's why our drugs cost so much. That's why people in the developing world can't get the drugs. But more to the point, that's why drugs for needed conditions are either not being developed at all or only being developed in situations where they can charge a lot of money. So um, this is a very ugly situation that we found ourselves in now. And what makes it worse is that the patents we give to drug makers are different from patents in the European Union and elsewhere. Many countries have patents that are tailored to the use of the drug. A patent might be given for five years, exclusivity, or the patent might be given for a short period of time as a test to see if it helps distribute the drug. But in our country, we give 14 years minimum, which most companies can expand to at least 20 years by various manipulations. So a company will have a drug that they will patent, they will profit from it exclusively for 20 years, then they'll tweak an electron or modify it slightly and go with a totally different drug that they will also patent. So um, this has not been good for innovation. It has discouraged innovation. And we're at the point now where we're actually having fewer new drugs instead of more new drugs than we were before the laws were passed. So it's an ugly situation. It was done to state industries, you know, desire for money, but it's effectively taken control of development of new drugs from the university. And by the way, as a grace note, we're paying for these very expensive drugs twice. We pay for them when we pay our taxes that go to support university innovation. And then we pay for them again when they come on the market in a very overpriced form. So the military industrial complex, the prison industrial complex, the medical industrial complex, there's also the media industrial complex, which we've yet to dive into on the show, but we'll do that in a future episode. I'm wondering if you think there's a way in which these industrial complexes are connected at certain levels and feed into upholding one another today. They're all connected. They're connected by greed. I actually teach a a course on journalism and bioethics at Columbia. And one of the really disappointing things we've seen with the news media is that around the time of the first Gulf War, I was really disappointed. I was working in the newsroom then. I was disappointed to see how quickly news organizations, including my own, went from being highly critical, highly skeptical, making analyses of government behavior and, and policies, to falling into line, becoming quote unquote embedded reporters, What does that mean? That means you see what the military wants you to see. You go where the military wants you to go. And so I I would think to myself more than once, this is an independent newspaper, or are we basically a mouthpiece for the military? Mm. So um, that's a problem. Same problem with industry. Very often industry is able to... You know, it's interesting when it comes to the media, I think... I think that very often it's less economic and financial bias that allows um, industry to, you know, basically distort its role in the pages of, of, new, of newspapers and magazines and uh, digital media. I think it often has more to do with, how can I put this, curation of information. You know, journalists, not all, of course, you know, they, they 
They vary widely from publication to publication. But we have to remember, most newspapers are not the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. Most are papers in a mid to small city, sometimes small city, that do not have people on staff who are equipped to do their own independent analyses and often will fall into accepting what they've been told, simply because they can't analyze it differently. So the scientific analyses that they're given, they will accept and not always stop or be able to question whether they're hearing from an, a disinterested scientist or they're hearing from an industrial employee or someone in the, you know, in the, in the pay of industry. So um, it's very insidious, like a creature with many tentacles, but the effect is always the same. We end up with a view of reality that's been carefully curated through you know, attention to profits and attention to presenting a certain image of industry and science that may not always be accurate. Mm. Well, as you've said before, threats to people of color and their cognition actually harm everybody in a society. So for racial justice, for environmental justice, for the betterment of our world, what do you see as our pathways going forward in addressing these disparities? And what are some of your calls to action for our listener? I think it's really important to realize that what you've just said is very true. But it's the way that it's true. I think people don't always understand. It's more than a noble sentiment. It's also a reality of health. We are all in this together because many health effects from pathogens to environmental exposures have a way of affecting us all. African-Americans, Native Americans, Hispanic Americans are canaries in the coal mine. What's happening to us today, what's happened to us yesterday, will happen to you tomorrow. There's something called the Robin Hood Index. And Deborah Prothostith Nishiro at the Harvard School of Public Health, Nishiro Kawachi, they used this index to look at health. And what they found were that countries that had wide disparities, they harmed dramatically people of color, of course. They also harmed the middle class. So these, you know, rich people are able to buy their way out of a lot of difficulties. The middle class cannot. So what happens is that we have these profound harms that today are ravaging the bodies and minds of African Americans and, and Native Americans, but tomorrow will ravage the mind body of a large group of Americans. So it is not only an ethical, noble sentiment, but it's also a physical reality that these uh, these horrible horrible devastation is going to affect almost all of us eventually. So I think that's really important to realize. And I also think that in terms of what people can do, one of the things I found really powerful is if you go way back to around 1980s in Afton, North Carolina, there's a uh, city, mostly um, African-American, middle-class city, that had found itself the recipients of a crime. The government and the EPA decided to dump PCB poison oil into that community. And they thought they did it because we're black. We're the only largely black community in the area. They began protesting PCBs and the sheriffs came out and got on their bullhorns, began talking about law and order and began arresting them. But guess who else came out? Whites from the surrounding areas, many of them. And as a result, in my opinion, it's because of the whites who came out that the news coverage went on for six weeks. For six weeks, you saw daily newscasts of these people being brutalized by the police. And I'm convinced that 
you know, the help of our white allies, allies needs to continue being public and sustained. I think that really helped us get through the civil rights movement successfully, and it's going to help us now. We want justice and peace. We want freedom and equality. We have all become slaves, and the system has failed. And the empire was built on the shame and the guilt. It's a debt that can never be paid. Until these stories What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Philip Grandjean, who I should have mentioned before now, is a scientist, expert in toxicology. He wrote a book called Only One Chance. He talks in great detail about the environmental assault of industrial chemicals on the cognition of Americans. He's not talking only about Americans of color. He's talking about Americans in general. And it's a very, not only packed with information, but it's a profoundly poetic book. I strongly recommend it. And I follow the accounts of Mustafa Ali and Kim Talbert, who are all, I always learn something. They're, you know, deeply illuminating in terms of not only environmental problems, people of color, but all the other challenges as well. So follow them. And we've had the honor of having Dr. Ali in a past episode, so I highly recommend our listener go back to check that out. Um, What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Well, sometimes the world looks quite bleak like it it does today, right? You ask yourself, what isn't going wrong? (laughs) From a pandemic to racial violence in the street, um, almost open warfare, um, environmental devastation. But I always remember that God works through serendipity. He works through other people. And the cliche that your mom told you, it's a cliche because it's true. You know, it's often is darkest before dawn. I think what really always gives me help is the fact that when there are these horrible challenges, how we face them is what's key. You know, we always ask God to help us as we should, but I believe God helps those who help themselves. And so when we face them, the way we are now, I'm very happy with the lot, way a lot of people are facing these challenges today. Yes, a lot of people are doing foolish things, but then we have a lot of people also who are in solidarity, uh, people who are deeply concerned about the lives of people, African-Americans being challenged on every front and are translating their concern into being publicly protesting it, making their voices heard, putting their bodies on the line. I think it's those things that predicate success. Things can look really, really bad, but if you see people reacting in solidarity in the right way, that gives me hope, and that's what I'm seeing today. What are you working on right now to improve your health? (sighs) To stop sitting at a computer. (laughs) (laughs) It's... uh, it's become a real challenge for me. You know, it's hard to remember that I was once a person who used to run regularly and do all the things, but I really love my work. I really love writing, but like a lot of people, I am definitely like a lot of Americans. I have fallen into this really bad sedentary lifestyle. And, um, it's a constant, it's a challenge for me. Mm. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Right now I'm writing a book about, consent in medicine. It's something that I think not, well, I know not enough attention is being turned t- 
toward. And I have a fear that consent to medical research, to medical practices, is something that's slowly been taken away from us. And I have this fear that we're going to wake up one day and find that we don't have it any longer and that people are not aware of it. It's being taken from us with no transparency, laws and rules that are being changed quietly without notifying the public. And I finally decided to stop worrying about it. I'm writing a book about it in hopes that people will see this danger and do something about it. Well, we're really looking forward to that. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our world at the moment, if anything? Other people. It's easy to focus, as I mentioned before, on what's going on. We can't, in fact, we can't avoid it. But um, I'm very heartened by, and frankly, also surprised, I'm very heartened by the fact that now when we have a black man murdered in broad daylight, completely horrible situation, but the response is not the response I've grown inured to over the decades, which is, oh, well, he must have been doing something wrong. Oh, isn't that terrible? Turn the page. You know, mm. the response is people who are just refusing to accept it any longer. And I find that really heartening. That's going to make change. The fact that people are motivated to erose, erase injustice and cruelty that doesn't affect them directly. I find that a very incredibly refreshing view into the human spirit, an incredibly heartening view when it comes to seeing justice done. Well, Green Dreamer, you can find Harriet's hugely important and profound books pretty much anywhere books are sold. But please, of course, support your local independent bookstores first if you can. And you can also follow her on Twitter at HAW95. Harriet, it's been an incredible honor to have you here on the podcast. Thank you so much for sharing your story and expertise with us. And we look forward to continue following your work and learning from you. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Um, wisdom, I don't know. But, <laughs> All wisdom, um, doubt. <laughs> assuming there was any there to begin with. But yes, I would just say it's important not to give up. I think in, in times like this when things look really bleak, one can't hear that enough. It's really important if, one, if you're convinced that what you're doing is right, that the stance you're doing is important, uh, not to be dissuaded from it, not to be deflected from it, and most importantly, not to be lulled into settling for something that's insufficient to deal with the problem. Um, I think as I've aged, probably the thing that I'm most grateful for is that I feel like I have not sort of um, tempered or slowed down in that way, which some people would say is the opposite of, of wisdom. Mm-hmm. But I think that there's no point in you know being a lot live or trying if you're not sometimes um, radical. And it's important to be radical and alive. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To reciprocate support for our community-powered show starting from $2, you can head to greendreamer.com support. If you aren't in a position to give financially, we also greatly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank the support from and partnership with Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Debt by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcriptions are edited by Janice Cantieri, and I'm your host, Kamehameha Shane. 
Take care and I will catch you soon in the next episode.